Welcome to In the Foreground, Conversations on Art and Writing. I am Carol Fowler, your host and director of the Research and Academic Program at the Clark Art Institute in Williamstown, Massachusetts. In this series of conversations, I talk with art historians and artists about what it means to write history and make art and the ways in which making informs how we create not only our world, but also ourselves. I am Caitlin Woolsey, Assistant Director of the Research and Academic Program. Today, as part of our mini-series focused on sound and visual art, I speak with Neil Atkinson, Associate Professor of Art History at the University of Chicago, whose research concerns the relationship between sound, space, and architecture, and their role in the construction of pre-modern urban societies. We discuss his research methods for working on historical soundscapes, and ways of reconstructing sonic relationships in the past, even if the sounds and experiences themselves are now lost to us. How do you then deal with the ephemerality of sound through uh, a medium like architecture and urban space, which have traditionally been sort of, you know, assumed to be relatively much, much more permanent and much more material. And so I think, um, it was not about historically reconstructing what things sounded like, but looking at the record to see how people understood what they were listening to, to understand the soundscape to the ways in which they reacted to it, participated in it, and you know, built upon it. It's a pleasure to have the chance to speak with you a little bit about your your work and your experiences. And usually we start these interviews um, by just asking if you could speak a little bit about how you came to art history or sort of what perhaps formative experiences kind of oriented you in this direction early on. Sure. And thank you, Caitlin, for this invitation. This is really um, a pleasure to speak in the, it's kind of a format and to reflect on this, which is something I don't... Um, um, always do in my own terms. I mean, in order, in terms of how I found art history, it's um, I guess it goes back uh, back to high school for me. I had an excellent art teacher in high school. Uh, he taught me a great deal. I admired him as a person. He also embedded art history into each year um, uh, of the five years of high school that I took um, art classes with him. And so I just came out of um, high school wanting to go to art school, thinking that. Uh, art history would just naturally be part of that, and it's not necessarily the case. I mean, it's it's um, art history and art have you know have um, their distinct uh, relationships, and they are you know different kinds and whatnot. So, depending on how one um, understands one's uh, sort of goals, art history may or may not be a formative part of of say a fine art education. And so, I was a little bit I think maybe ill prepared in that sense, and so. I really found that what I really in in university I found that I was really um, much more taken and compelled by the academic um, um, discipline of art history, um, and specifically it was then that I was beginning to be interested in architecture um, in cities, and so I was then navigating that sort of that other you know divide that sometimes occurs between you know architectural history and art history more um more traditionally conceived um and then thinking about the ways in which the discipline itself has in some ways suffered from this kind of paradigm of you know images sculptures 
buildings, you know, that has, you know, grown to include more 20th century media, but, but still has, you know, um, uh, trickier relationships between the different kinds of media um, that, it, that it studies. So I, um, I ended up um, le- uh, leaving a fine arts degree to um, specific concentrate specifically on art history by the time I graduated. And it was then that I began to think about, okay, where, you know, where can I take this and what should I do with this? And what does a career look like as an art historian? Because it wasn't all clear to me then um, at all. Were there certain media that you were particularly invested in or interested in, or was it sort of experimenting in different forms? Right. I mean, it was, I mean, my education was, I mean, this, this goes back, you know, I think, before the times when you know new media were very much more integrated, so I had a relatively traditional kind of education in um, painting and printmaking and photography, uh, for example. And I have to say that my naturally my interests went towards what I, I guess what you would call collage. I was constantly trying to build things on surfaces with other things and to try and integrate various types of media, different kinds of images. Collecting things and organizing things seemed to be the kind of MO that I had in, in sort of most of the projects that I attended to. Um, and I can, I can see now relationships in the way in which I approach my own um, academic work in terms of the way of collecting material, um, disparate things that were never necessarily meant to be together or not usually conceived of together, you know, juxtaposing them into a larger, more um, diverse kind of uh, structure structure to investigate a particular theme, for example. Mm-hmm. Once you realize that the the questions that art history might allow you to ask or that those, or architectural history, that those, um, that those questions were more the direction you wanted to go, kind of what were their formative um, teachers or exhibitions or texts or thinkers that really um, kind of shaped your, your early thinking at that time? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, I had I was really stimulated by a group of very I, I guess uh, they were early uh, scholars. Uh, I was studying in Montreal, um, and you know it wasn't clear to me as an undergraduate then, but I think I understand it a bit better now. These were mostly um, advanced graduate students and postdoctoral uh, students and adjunct. Um, uh, professors who were just starting out their careers. They were teaching part-time. They were finishing um, dissertations. They were also working um, on, you know, on, on their first books at the time, for example. And they, I had, as an undergraduate, I really got the impression that art history was one of the, the most fascinating disciplines in the humanities and social sciences because the ways in which it penetrated deep into various cultural forms. And so this, I guess, was a whole generation of scholars who were teaching me um, to uh, to understand how uh, how to read texts. For example, I had a, uh, I had a whole course on uh, on Immanuel Kant taught by a professor who uh, you know is both a philosopher and an art historian, and that has sort of been a lasting foundation in terms of me understanding the um, the, the legacy and the heritage of. Um, especially the Western canon since the Enlightenment um, and the relationship between uh, understanding Kant's philosophy as it pertains to art history. And as well, I had uh, a course that I was allowed into as a as an undergraduate, which was mainly master's and PhD students from um, all universities in uh, around Montreal, both French and English. And the course was called The Wounds of Representation. 
And it just it took this concept or this idea of the wound of something of damage, whether that be bodily, whether that be uh, materially or whatnot, um, and took that as a way to explore art history uh, across time and space in ways that I remember coming home from that class and remember literally running from the campus to my apartment because I was so blown away by what the stuff that had been um, uh, discussed in that class. I thought that, that, that anything would be possible in this discipline. Mm -hmm. And I ended up doing a, a project on a, on a Montreal artist whose name escapes me for, uh, for the moment, but um, she, um, I was looking back at the, um, the Tuesday lectures um, of a French psychologist who was treating women for his uh, for hysteria you know this invented disease right that um and the ways in which uh, he became a, a manipulator of bodies and her work was really sort of trying to deconstruct right this uh, this this patriarchal discourse right that was um both um you know uh animating but also uh wounding the female body through you know through real surgical procedures based on this fictitious idea about what uh, a certain disease was that was constructed literally in the in the medical theater and the the work was really um uh, itself was fascinating to me but then applying this concept of of the wound of uh, the wounded body was a was a way into our history in which i thought it could be Taking these kinds of themes can really allow you to bring disparate um, discourses and objects and people together into, I think, um, into a kind of, and, and, and to allow you to assemble a project, which is so uh, which is so much more than the sum of its parts. And is art historical because you're beginning with art historical principles, but it involves so many things that come from outside the discipline. You know, so that course was really, really formative in sort of, I think, in, in transforming my thinking about what it was possible to do uh, historically with, uh, uh, with our history. Um, and I think I took that with me because it was a long, that was a bit long time dormant um, as I went through my master's degree and then finally back to my PhD, where I think I finally was able to sort of put that, uh, that education at that moment into practice. And do you feel like that that sort of emphasis as well on textual analysis or textual evidence is a part of the of the process as much as sort of you know maps or visual representation or residual objects? Um, is that so? Is that something that you feel like has really informed the way that you approach um, kind of art historical evidence or objects or pictures? You mean this um, this this literary. Um, uh, <laughs> basis yeah i think it has i mean i i i did double major originally in literature and art history i was very much interested in literature uh, throughout my in my academic career um but i also think that um it was trying to understand texts always as a literary phenomenon in other words to my idea was to get rid of the the distinction between what is a documentary text and what's a literary text, um, or to at least blur that distinction, right? So that mm -hmm. one could see the ways in which both were dealing with similar kinds of issues, um, were often written within the same kind of idiom or, or, or um, you know, understanding of the, of, um, uh, of the world around them, for example, and that they, they all needed to be interpreted, um, and that one was not simply giving information uh, and one was not simply creating an aesthetic object, but that they were that they were often uh, using the rhetoric of language to both facilitate and to obfuscate uh, 
uh, information as well. And so, yeah, it became really, really important for me to be able to develop a way to take literary texts and use them historically, not to prove things or, or, or necessarily, but to show by them through the way in which they construct you know, a world and the way in which they relate to their world, that they can become... Um, objects you could juxtapose to spaces, to people, to buildings, to images and that kind of thing in an art historical project. You mentioned before kind of growing interest in cities. What was that the sort of juncture in which a, a more in-depth focus on, um, on architectural history and urban space and environments kind of took root? Or how would you trace that kind of aspect of your formation? Yeah, I think um, that interest, I think, came, I'm sure, like for many other people, with um, uh, studies in architecture and urbanism at the undergraduate level that continued um, uh, at the master's level, where I was, I became really fascinated at first with uh, the way in which um, architects and um, architects, engineers and planners were um, constructing worlds, right? And they were, um, and the, um, the excitement about developing new worlds and the kind of utopian thinking of late 19th, early 20th century works. And then the, the ultimately the critique of the massive failure of this kind of top-down planning modes of re, you know, social engineering new worlds um, had always fascinated me as well. And I think that what led me to thinking about these um, – both antagonistic but productive relationship between efforts to um, uh, to uh, from the top to reform, replan, and redevelop um, you know urban spaces and cities and urban culture versus the kinds of resistances and sort of local autonomies and um, uh, design efforts at the local scale. Like I was always been interested at the kind of the the local street level community as their own urban planner and urban designers and the constructors, you know, uh, the, the way in which they organize their world according to their needs. And those two forces coming together, I have always thought um, um, are the place where the most humane urban environments could be constructed. So in other words, I was trying to find a way to think about not just the production or design um, of cities from an architectural point of view, but also to think about the uh, how the production uh, and meaning of those spaces is a, is a constant performative dialogue right um amongst various stakeholders uh with various uh, positions of power or powerlessness for example that are constantly um generating meaning in the urban world and i think that that's where uh, cities are at their most dynamic in terms of uh, functioning as um, social and spatial phenomena and i wanted to bring that back to the early modern period because the uh, to think of uh, especially the period that i was originally studying which is the late middle ages and renaissance in italy where a great deal of the scholarship really had been about um, uh, understanding the production through design of what those cities, uh, of, of what what a city should look like, how a society should be organized, and whatnot. And to see if I could get at the debates or the, what was happening on the street to see the ways in which that was inflected, resisted, and accommodated by the by the performative dialogues and stories that are happening, you know, um, mm-hmm. uh, in those spaces. Out of which, right, often urban literature came from mm-hmm. the early modern period. Would you would you be willing to share a little bit about kind of what that research or methodological process looks like for you, like working on the early modern period and in some way trying to draw, draw up from the record that's available those sort of performative or dynamic dimensions? In concrete terms, how one just actually tries to figure that out? 
for a little bit more context, this is something I think about just in terms of writing art history and writing about sound and the challenges or the possibilities of writing about something that um, can't be as readily illustrated on the page as or on the screen as one kind of a painting or a print or something. And so how do you make that experience of, um, of a sound poem or a soundscape or an environment, a sonic environment or a kind of performative experience? How do you make that present to a reader? That's sort of central to the problem, which of course I don't think I've I've completely solved, but I'm still trying to experiment in ways in which one can do that. I mean, I, I got to sound because I was very interested in, um, uh, I was interested in the typology of the medieval Renaissance tower and the medieval Renaissance bell tower in particular. And I was just, I was very interested in the vertical profile of cities and their descriptions and the kind of, the kind of visual orientation that they, um, provided and it became very very quickly apparent that um this was uh very much um an acoustic project was becoming an acoustic project the people were less um talking about what towers looked like and more about how they sounded and more about how their city sounded that led me very very quickly into that whole um, um uh, project on bell towers and uh, the relation between official and uh, unofficial soundscapes, but it became very clear that here was a moment in which my visual discipline um, had been, um, say, missing out on um, a great deal of what architecture and space were, um, how they were communicating uh, meaning and through which societies were deriving their identities through the acoustic dimensions of this architecture. So we, we normally study that sign, you know, as a, as a sign and object. So yeah, of course, as you put out, the problem is how do you, how do you then deal with the ephemerality of sound through uh, a medium like architecture and urban space, which have traditionally been sort of, you know, assumed to be relatively much, much more permanent and much more material. And so I think, um, uh, it was not about historically reconstructing what things sounded like, but looking at the record to see how people understood what they were listening to, to understand the soundscape, to the ways in which they reacted to it, participated in it, and, you know, and built upon it. And so um, by by looking at, and this is where I think where, where literature comes in in a way, so there, you know, there are legislative um, and diaristic and... Um, uh, accounting sources versus uh, the, the literary canon um, as well, um, in which I was um, continually, continually looking at the way in which people talked about cities and urban spaces and navigating and negotiating and constantly coming up with the ways in which they were listening to how their spaces uh, spoke to them. And so by, by, by drawing all of these threads um, together so that one's, you know, the, you know, the, the creative, the literary creative space of, of literature, right? The the kind of uh, more disciplinary and political spaces of government legislation, um, and the you know and records of it of, of moments of crises when this um, uh, suddenly you had to you had to listen very carefully to what was going on, or things could go incredibly wrong. So that, that people's ears were much more attuned, or they were more explicit about how their ears were attuned at particular at particular moments. And then um, it was a matter of, of, of how do you give this a certain kind of form, right? So, and the way in which people talk about it. So it was trying to think about the ways in which um, 
sound defined space so that you could see the effects of sound spatially and visually. And I guess as an art historian, this was a relatively important to me too, to visualize um, uh, the effects of sound so that you could uh, look at the multiple constituencies that sound sort of created and the overlapping dependencies. Um, and try, you know, in, in one project, I was really trying, I'm still not completely successful in this, I'm trying to figure out or trying to map the movement of sounds or ritual sounds when, you know, there are, um, when people are singing, when people are, are um, making music, uh, when they are singing the uh, masses, when they are praying, uh, when people are listening to these kinds of processions and uh, during feast days and whatnot, and trying to understand the, um, the interaction of space and sound visually as a phenomenon right across time. Um, and so I've been, you know, experimenting mostly in, in, in sort of still images to represent that and then to to evoke that um, by um, understanding how people how people might have uh, experienced right these kinds of sounds, it's really really difficult thing to do. In the current mm-hmm. project, I'm trying ultimately to get back to a more um, I think digitally sophisticated way of, of say of mapping and modeling um, uh, sound. And I can talk about that a little bit, but that's a, a long-term project. I don't know how far off it'll be, and I'm not even sure if it's going to be successful. But it's, it's definitely worth a try. I mean, do you spend a lot of time in archives, or is it more um, is it more a matter of figuring out how to surface the information in these kind of you know digital or still image visualizations? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I did, um, and and the archival component is it's a bit tricky with this kind of a project, but it um, I have found. And continue to find that um, uh, legislative sources, so statutes, is, you know, that was a big part of the book that I wrote, as well as um, personal writings, um, tend to be really, really evocative and rich. And when you're working in the archive, although you know, you imagine it, imagine it as this sort of lone consultation with these, you know, with these impenetrable documents that you're trying to, you know, to get through, uh, not only you know learning how to read the actual script and then figuring out what the document's trying to say and then learning, you know, uh, uh, about, you know, uh, what the, what the authors are trying to do, for example. Um, beyond that, um, there's also, you know, a culture of the archive, which I think is important too, that so that you um, are constantly talking to other people about what they're finding, right. And that the archive is a kind of collective project of, you know, know of 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 tips and um uh, ways of approaching texts and the the archive um in the way it's organized in my experience as in the italian mode where you have sort of an, a kind of an institutional and um uh, organization where documents for an institution will tend to then um facilitate projects about a certain institution Right, and you could do cross institutional comparison and whatnot as well. Um, however, the project I had, right, which was this theme that I'm bringing of sound, meant that I had to um, read documents and literally scan for keywords that were in my head that I became more and more important. So I would recognize them and I'd be able to categorize them. And so it was about, you know, it's about really the the long term, sometimes often or often serendipitous way of just looking at possible sources and then extracting from them um, the kinds of things that could be useful for a project, say, on sound. 
and what that would look like, and then assembling that at the end. So I don't think it, um, this kind of a project can only be archival, although I think it needs that component to really um, uh, to get at the uh, really the detailed and interconnected ways in which sound permeates, right, both uh, familial institutional, professional, legal, or religious uh, uh, communities. Um, but I think that's why I was also looking at um, uh, at literary sources, like the Decameron, Bocaccio's Decameron, which is really, really important for that early project, um, because they um, they help you to interpret those, um, uh, those, those, the more personal, say, writings of people who are ultimately the readers of this text, right? So you, mm-hmm. because, um, so that their concerns are similar to the concerns, and you know, in fact, that they are kind of at least readers or interlocutors with these literary texts, and so that they have an understanding of what, um, of what the, uh, the agendas are. Um, and it also, there, and you also have, of course, the, the spatial record, the actual material record of, um, of certain buildings and spaces that you can incorporate that, that into. And so ultimately, what I'm, will be trying to do is to, this would be my dream, is to really embed the literary, the documentary uh, sources into, right, the spaces themselves. And that's where the digital project sort of comes in. Mm-hmm. That was ultimately the dream, so that you could, you one could see and um, one could uh, uh, and read and sort of um, and think about um, the, the sources Right, connected to a particular place that were part of building up this larger soundscape. Hmm. If I'd love to hear you speak a little bit more about that project. I know it's ongoing. It has several different trajectories at the moment, um, and not all of them are specifically about sound, but they are because I'm still very interested at the core about the bodily experience of urban space and architecture, and I think that sound is one of those that has a particular kind of imprint, but I think that there um, are um, also, other I think um, really productive ways of uh, using um, or through the through the body that you can understand I think historic uh, space historically, and so I mean I uh, inevitably if when I was um, talking about sound and architecture um, in the past, people would say, well, how come there are no sounds in your in your you know. That this is a complete, except for the sound of my own voice, this is a completely silent um, presentation of the material. And yes, it was. And I think that that was partly because I was trained as an art and architectural historian. So, um, and, but also partly as a kind of resistance to what I felt was not what the project was about. And that was kind of historical immersive reconstruction, which I thought was impossible, not particularly, could not really be genuine. It would be a little bit disingenuous, even if it were spectacular. Um, and to really try to make this make the case for that, this is a silent world to us now. We can only evoke it in in fragmentary ways and in indirect ways. And the minute you introduce sound, then that 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 for me at the time that would sort of cause then one to imagine a direct relationship between the past and sound that I was not trying to get at. However, um, there was uh, there was the the idea in several of these conversations and one in particular where I thought, well, maybe there's a way of at least um, modeling, reconstructing the sonic relationships, if not the actual sounds. In other words, if I'm here trying to talk about the ways in which a moving procession is singing to a city and the city is hearing it, what might that actually mean in practice if they're also talking to churches and the churches are ringing their bells back at them? Would that, would that have a meaningful acoustic imprint relationally in other words 
Um, could you model a soundscape in which, um, you know, the, the possibility of the voices being heard in various parts of the city and the call and response issues as this um, cortege moved around the city, would that be mappable? And then you could understand maybe the possibility of this being um, a very much an interactive experience or, or, or not so much. And that was the impetus to um, uh, to reconstruct, therefore, a kind of a 3D model of the uh, of Renaissance Florence, in order to then be able to model the sound to see what was hearable, listenable, legible, mm-hmm. audible, and that, um, uh, because there are there are ways in which you can do that digitally. Um, and that and that project has them been working on reconstructing first the street network, the two-dimensional city through the tax records of 1427 that we're working on currently. And that is a major project in and of itself. We've already spent in excess of, I don't know, $125,000. And we're still, uh, we're still in the process of, of, with my excellent colleagues at the University of Chicago are helping me clean and organize that data. So it becomes um, possible to re-engineer or reverse engineer that two-dimensional map of the city at that particular moment. And then, of course, the problem would be how do you build up into three dimensions there in ways that are, are authentic or at least plausible in order to begin to model sound. So that's that's a long-term project which may or may not have success in the long run. It depends on many factors, um, some of them being, um, you know, funding, but also the you know whether or not um, the, we have the enough data and the conceptual tools in order to construct it plausibly. But at the same time. Um, I've also been very, very interested in um, at least digitally re- reconstructing um, or following the movement of people ar- around cities. And this is, comes um, in a project that I'm working on with a colleague at Duke University, Susanna Cavilla, where we are looking at um, travel accounts and visitors to the city and the ways in which they describe moving around the city and mapping those experiences as ways to also generate these itineraries um, through which you can embed certain kinds of data, be they textual uh, sonic, you know, do, you know, descriptions of what people see and hear and whatnot. And so there, there are a couple of ways in which that I'm experimenting with uh, how to, uh, to, to um, advance that, none of which have, um, are completely resolved yet. I'm curious kind of where you would see your architectural history background and the kind of the mapping or reconstruction side, the, the plan side, the art historical sort of component and then this digital human you know the digital humanities kind of tools and and the more collaborative approach that it seems like these kinds of visualization projects require that it's not really possible for one art historian or architectural historian in a room to tackle this endeavor that it requires this more collaborative model of making Mm -hmm. yes it does definitely i think um I mean, it, it began very much back when I was writing my dissertation, and I was looking at texts that were describing spaces or describing certain routes or whatnot. And so I would get out like a pencil and just try to visualize what the text was telling me. Because as you know, it, when you know, texts describing visual things are become very, very complicated, and it's much easier just to look at the visual, the visual thing. So, I mean, that was, a, that was just a, an early form of visualization. And then, in you know, as discussions grew and I began to think more about how to represent sound and movement in particular um, and, the, you know, uh, and sonic environments, um, and more discussions I had, say, with um, uh, 
digital specialists and other art historians, it became it became clear that there was a a, a natural sort of trajectory or uh, trajectory for this project to enter into a, you know to um, embed itself in a digital um, in digital methods in order to explore um, really what the meaning of movement and sound could be. And so, um, you know, uh, and that led me to a, a couple of uh, summer um, institutes um, run by um, Mellon and uh, Cress, for example, um, 2012-2014, to develop sort of methods of, okay, how does one then um, in, uh, make visual arguments uh, through this kind of digital mapping? And that's been like the, really the, uh, the big uh, issue for me. Uh, lately, and that is sort of developing the research questions which cannot be answered uh, through uh, more conventional means because they, you know, um, certain research techniques are, are extremely viable for producing certain questions and certain kind of answers to them historically. Whereas I think it's um, it's a bit more difficult to, um, or has been a bit more difficult to think about the ways in which digital uh, tools and technologies uh, both. Um, uh, allow certain questions and not others and to be aware of that and then to see what what kinds of things can be answered that can be answered with not in any other fora and i'm I, and i think that um certain aspects of sound could be part of that answer because you know a lot of how i'm reconstructing indirectly these soundscapes is based a lot on um, certain conjectures and speculations about what uh, should or can be true mm-hmm I mean, to take it back to something you said earlier, too, I was thinking about when you were talking about working in the archive, scanning for keywords. And I was curious if there have been moments through this sort of long, your your career process of working on these different projects, if there have been moments where things arose in the archive or um, that sort of keywords or, or through lines or elements that sort of you hadn't anticipated and that that maybe was either just surprising or kind of shifted the the research tools that that those that 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 a particular project might have demanded yeah no that's an excellent question um let me think um i mean i had in one case i had assumed that um all things being equal how do i explain this is um it's a bit it's a bit Tricky, but I think I had the assumption that um, that the that the soundscapes were um, uh, fully knowable and understandable to the people that used them because of their. It quickly became clear that people were audibly um, much more uh, literate than we are in terms of understanding um, the meaning of the world around them through these ephemera sounds, for example, in soundscapes that had a great deal of meaning um, in them. However, I think it became quite clear that they, um, it was often as confusing and or complicated as it, uh, as it is for us. And that, um, um, and that it was, it's never quite clear and that the one's uh, position literally and figuratively matters a great deal as well. And that's something that maybe I should have understood from the beginning, but I thought, um, that um, it, but it, but it, but it wasn't. In, in other words, that um, uh, the change of meaning of the soundscape depends on the position from one from where one hears it, and maybe the position in which one is able to access it as say as a um, 
as one who could speak through it, for example, because there are those sort of that, that couldn't. And so that kind of complexity, which made uh, me even more depressed about the possibility of reconstructing uh, a plausible soundscape, meant that the, that the soundscape were, could be, you know, at, um, as individual as, and as collective um, as any other sort of contingent system of meanings. And so that there are, there are a number of ways in which the um, people obviously share an understanding, but the fact, but, 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 but getting at, um, uh, getting at the soundscape in its nuances is ultimately, I think, uh, in ways uh, lost to us. Um, mm. And that reconstructing them is a kind of way of a sort of, uh, you know, so I have to be constantly aware of that. You are recon uh, that the reconstructions are these generalizations, um, which which are meaningful and productive, right? But which are um, are necessarily in, insufficient. One of the things that I that drew me to say to architecture in cities was trying to um, re-embed um, art and architectural history within um, a much sort of wider public network, you know, as, as, a, as a much more integrated social phenomenon than, say, um, looking at artworks in museums, for example, mm-hmm. um, which I think, uh, which I think is just is a different dynamic, just some, somewhere of sort of that, that I felt I needed, um, I needed to go. And maybe architecture, I felt, was one way of, of doing, of going there, so that, yeah, I'm constantly trying to then bring, um, uh, to reconstitute what the, 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 the social sort of implications are in the, in the, the work that I'm doing um, because they are being, because th- those are the people who are producing sounds and then listening and, or, you know, producing the meaning of the space around them and then, um, and then living in them. And that's what sort of fascinated me as a way of understanding design as a collective uh, project that was not only the purview of trained professionals, especially at a time when trained professionals like, you know, um, uh, or the emerging professional architect, you know, we have these great heroes of the Italian Renaissance that are constantly talked about. And so, but it, it was sort of only at moments of rupture or disruption or something like that, where the soundscape sort of came into being as a historical phenomenon through documents. Mm. Um, and this is partly why I'm interested now in foreigners visiting um, other cities and talking about them because they are, unfamiliar and so they, they'll betray a great deal of how they are trying to structure um a new world or new phenomena that they're not um, uh, not familiar with and it gives us vital information about something that to many other people would just be not worth remarking upon right but, but if you habitual. want to get to that exactly it's too habitual but if you want to get to um like i do to that level of granularity and to that level of um of um uh, of experience, then the, again, indirectly, you go through these um, uh, moments of, of rupture or disjunction, which again, in, I guess, dictate in a bit of a different way what the, so they, they're giving you a view of something that is under reconsideration or misrecognition and or transformation. And I mean, you mentioning these sort of moments of rupture and shift, um, sort of leads me to ask you just a little bit kind of zooming out a little bit more broadly, kind of both within your own research and your own approach, or perhaps in your, in your teaching or other projects you're working on, I guess just what feels most urgent or most pressing to you right now, either within sort of art history or architectural history more specifically. Mm -hmm. 
I've been I've been a little bit disengaged from a lot of teaching the last couple of years for various reasons, and now I'm really beginning to experience this real generational divide in what, uh, say, scholars of my generation have been trained to do, what they ex- are expected to do, versus a new generation of students who are much more, um, I think, um, they're much more involved, I think, in um, in the larger structures of power and politics and whatnot they have a different kind of sense of what um uh what constitutes say um knowledge about certain uh certain things and what constitutes the various ways which you go about um interacting with the world one of the things that um, has become and this is uh, this is um uh not necessarily related has become important to me through research and that comes back to the project I described that I'm uh, collaborating on, on travelers to Rome. And mm-hmm. that is, um, you know, in, in recent um, work that we've been doing, you know, it, there was, um, you know, there's a mini, what's called a mini ice age in the late 16th, early 17th century, where there were massive crop failures. Uh, there was widespread hunger um, around this, um, especially Southern Europe, but around Europe in general. Um, and um, and so at this particular moment, the Tiber River was flooding, you know, in ways that were really catastrophic um, at a rates that were um, uh much greater than normal, and there's there are certain um, kind of reactions, uh, non-reactions, right, to these phenomena. And I think that um, for my period, especially, a kind of integrating an environmental history into the discipline, I think, is absolutely mm-hmm. crucial. And, and now I'm we're trying to think of okay, so it's not just about you know architecture and cities, but it's really about the relationship between cityscapes, landscapes, between countryside and, mm. and city. And the, um, and this just was brought to my attention because I, you know, I was woefully ignorant of it, but, you know, someone was looking at, you know, we, um, uh, our work in this regard and they referred us to, you know, Felix Guattari's um, three ecologies, right? That, mm-hmm. that uh, uh, you know, the, the ecologies of the my, of the psyche, right? Um, um as well as social uh, social ecology and environmental ecology, right? And we discovered you know, through our work at Rome that there are, you know, there that there are, you know, urban ecologies that are connected to uh, rural and country uh, landscape ecologies that are connected to um, uh, to various social ecologies, be they individual or communal. And I think there there are really exciting ways in which uh, architectural history could embed itself within a larger ecological history that could be really informative about the ways in which we understand our relationship to the natural and man-made environments which are not distinct right which are not which are always you know um coming up running up against each other there's no such thing even you know back in the 17th century 16th or 17th century around rome there's no such thing as a natural environment that has that has not been um uh integrated into and or neglected by you know uh, know, thousands of years of human presence so well, and I can imagine, you know, not just in terms of soundscapes, but also the kind of performative rituals that you spoke about and sort of moving through urban environments that other ecological factors like climate or extraction or sort of materials that are used for the built environment, like all are going to shape in ways that may at first glance seem invisible, but are actually profoundly important to shape those experiences or those encounters or how they play out over time or how they change over time too. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree that the, the so-called you know, material turn in our history, I think, um, uh, really needs to follow you know that um, that trajectory right to the larger um, uh, trade um, 
to the, the larger systems of say trade and extraction that you're you're talking about that have been with us that have been you know that have been part of these economies in the production of luxury goods like artworks um, for um, you know for millennia, and I think that um, I just you know because they. they the, the people that I study, you know, five, six hundred years ago are aware of these connections, you know, mm-hmm. but but not necessarily in the way that we think that they ought to be aware, but they are aware of these connections. And I think it's um, I think it really is would produce a really exciting art history in knowing that there's um, knowing that the, the economic and say larger geopolitical investment in a work of art, as well as the kind of aesthetic and artistic right in investment in that uh, in that work of art to see them as um as objects that are part of a larger um global movement even if they're very very locally produced well thank you so much for your time and it's um it's been a real pleasure to, to speak with you today likewise thank you caitlin Thank you for listening to In the Foreground, conversations on art and writing. For more information about this episode and links to the books, articles, and artworks discussed, please consult clarkart.edu slash rap slash podcast. The Clark Art Institute sits on the ancestral homelands of the Mohican people. We acknowledge the tremendous hardship of their forcible removal from these homelands by colonial settlers. A federally recognized nation, they now reside in Wisconsin and are known as the Stockbridge Muncie community. As we learn, speak, and gather here at the Clark, we pay honor to their ancestors, past and present, and to future generations by committing to build a more inclusive and equitable space for all. This program was produced by Caitlin Woolsey and myself, with music by Light Chaser, editing by John Boutine, and additional support provided by Jesse Centivan.